Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So, over the last few days, we've been hearing about Canadian soldiers in military winter exercises with members of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Chief of Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance first cut back and canceled the exercises after being approached by the U.S. military, so the story went in the Globe and Mail. Reports are that then Global Affairs Canada pushed back, critical of General Vance's decision, suggesting that it may somehow upset China over the two Michaels issue. Look, Chinese ambassadors, they threatened this country. They tried to bully us. And they did it yesterday. The, the current ambassador to China did it yesterday. Go to RoyGreenShow.com and read my uh, commentary. RoyGreenShow.com. You can also find it on GlobalNews.ca. Now, as far as this issue is concerned, um, I can think of no one better to speak to than Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who was the second in command of Canada's military, as you know, and it's always an honor Admiral, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you, sir, for coming on the program. Well, thank you, and good afternoon, Roy. Hi. So the general question for you first, Admiral, are you concerned about a change in attitude and public displays of aggression by China over the last number of years, particularly since President Xi assumed power? Yes, I am. And as you and I have discussed a few times uh, over the last couple of months, this is a, a clear and increasingly concerning set of signals uh, out of the regime in uh, Beijing uh, and indicating, in a, as you said in your opening comments, that uh, they're not afraid to bully uh, countries uh, or individuals who don't necessarily agree with, uh, with what their objectives are. Admiral, what's the uh, background behind the Canadian Armed Forces, either training with, cooperating with, or engaging in some manner with the People's Liberation Army of China? Well, I think in in uh, the simplest terms, this is uh, historically these types of things are not unusual. Um, we have had uh, over the history of the armed forces a number of uh, training relationships with countries who were considered as potential uh, adversaries or uh, certainly were not allies. Uh, we we did this with Russia in the past, uh, other countries, and uh, certainly you know uh, a. Uh, an approach to China that was more uh, based on engagement would be consistent with um, historical uh, approaches to this kind of thing in the past. Yeah. So this sort of thing happens, and uh, as you say, it can be, is it bilateral all only, or is it uh, multinational? How does it normally work out? Well, it, it, it can be both, and it really depends on, on the nature of the engagement. If it's a large uh, sort of pre-planned international exercise, and of course, uh, it would be a multilateral uh, view. It could be based on a, a discussion. It could be based on a, an existing treaty arrangement, uh, or it could be a simple bilateral arrangement, uh, as was the case in this particular situation, as I understand it. Admiral Norman, so President Xi takes power in, in Beijing, and things begin to change. China becomes far more aggressive. As far as its dealings internationally is concerned, in fact, threatening, uh, they've, they've actually threatened Canada that if uh, we, if this country opens the door to dissidents from Hong Kong to arrive here, to come to Canada, then potentially that could mean trouble for Canadian citizens who are dual citizens who live in, in Hong Kong. So when you have that kind of change in approach from the government in Beijing, is it natural then for these agreements, these arrangements that exist bilateral? Or, or, or multilateral, uh, is it natural for them to be re-examined and reviewed and for the Americans, for example, to get in touch with uh, Canada and say, I think you might want to revisit your agreement? Absolutely. Uh, as you've just laid it out, it would make perfect sense. Uh, these situations are dynamic, they're fluid. Um, there's, there's no uh, way that these types of discussions would be uh, happen at one moment in time and not be re-evaluated. Uh, over over the course of uh, what's playing out. And as you've described, when one of the parties, in this case China, starts behaving 
differently and in this case more aggressively and as you've said it's not just towards canada it's towards our allies a lot of uh, um, things going on as you and i've discussed previously in the region australia um, so they're not targeting canada exclusively but certainly they're not uh, afraid to uh, take a run at us and and uh, clearly they they believe that uh, we're problematic I think what's really interesting in this particular case is you're you're seeing two things. One, you're seeing the strategic issues associated with China, which you've been talking about. Um, and we're also seeing how the approach of the machinery of government in Canada is not a uh, homogeneous or unified approach. And that uh, you're, you're seeing discrepancies in terms of how the different branches of government see the issues and how they want to react to them. Could you just uh, speak a, a little more to that? Because um, when uh, the Chief of Defence Staff made the decision to put a stop to these engagements with China, the pushback from Global Affairs w- was instant. W- w- did that surprise you? Uh, well, no, it didn't surprise me. Now, of course, I wasn't privy to this until I read about it in in uh, the media, like uh, your listeners. But um, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. These types of disagreements are far more common uh, than perhaps Canadians would imagine. I don't think it's necessarily a concern, but I do find it um, a little uh, disturbing in the context of how you want to deal with uh, the type of behavior that we're seeing from China. Um, similar discussions have taken place with respect to how the armed forces uh, would um, participate in exercises, for example, in uh, the Asia-Pacific region, whether certain actions may or may not be perceived as potentially threatening to China, and therefore maybe we should reconsider doing them. Uh, These sorts of discussions are ongoing, and I think it's understandable that national defense and global affairs would have different views. Um, What's interesting in this case is the the very uh, differing views and the fact that they've now um, spilled over into the public domain. T. Dillman sends an email to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com. Uh, what needs to be done is for Canada and Canadians to wake up. Learn the lesson China is teaching. They are our enemy. Friends do not take hostages. Friends do not engage in economic extortion. Friends do not engage in cyber espionage attacks. And if you want to read something really fascinating, uh, just go back and see what our friend and Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper wrote about Nortel and China's um, involvement with the disappearance of Nortel, which coincidentally uh, timed out perfectly for the arrival of Huawei. Yeah, everything on the up and up. Vice Admiral Mark Norman is my guest. And um, Admiral, thank you very much again for taking the time. And we broke off before the break talking about how uh, we have an arm of government, global affairs, challenging the essentially the decision taken by the chief of defense staff to end the military cooperation or exercises or whatever we're calling it with China. The optics internationally aren't great, are they, if we have a, a significant arm of the federal government uh, challenging the chief of defense staff on a decision that it says to make? No, I, I think you make a really good point, Roy. And, uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, uh, this is not an isolated incident. Of course, you know, it, it's it's a quite visible one, and, it, and people are paying attention. But, uh, you know, and certainly in my experience uh, in senior leadership positions over the last decade or so, I, I've, I've witnessed a number of situations where um, and it, disagreement, I guess, is a natural part of developing policy. But at the same time, um, the, the posturing and positioning um, of, of the two uh, players, in this case being defense and foreign affairs, uh, is a bit it's a bit disturbing and um, it's really important that Canada send consistent signals to our allies as much as it is to our potential adversaries and how uh, will our allies or how might our allies interpret what's going on and react to it well I, I think uh, you know a couple potential reactions uh, one would be um, the inconsistency of our actions and our messaging um, if they see, uh, you know, uh, potential uh, variances in that, that, that it'll cause them some concern. Uh, I think uh, uh, signaling that uh, they're not really sure 
where we stand on any particular issue. Um, it could be potentially that uh, they're not necessarily sure that they can uh, depend on Canada uh, if if there was um, a situation where you know the Allies had to rally together. And I think any one of those on their own is disturbing. Yeah, particularly when our closest ally is the United States. I would yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. And I know that you know over the last few years, uh, Canadians have had um, issues with uh, you know who, how things were being run in the United States, and we have to be careful that we don't um, you know personalize that relationship too too much because. Uh, it is far more strategic and far more um, lasting and substantial than um, what may be going on either in Ottawa or in Washington at any given time. And, uh, you know, of course, we have other allies around the world who are watching very closely as well, particularly uh, Australia, who live uh, almost in the same neighborhood as China. And uh, they have a whole different set of problems um, that they're they're having to deal with. They do, and they've been very outspoken about their challenges to China, and uh, much to the dismay of Beijing and uh, the Australian government isn't running and hiding. They're taking they're taking it head on because they don't really have any other choice. I don't imagine. Admiral yeah, Norman, what do you? That, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I think that last point you made, Roy, is a really good one for your listeners because what you know, it, if there's any uh, of the countries in in that network of our closest allies, the the five eyes, uh, as we often refer to them, who has the most at stake with respect to the relationship with China, it is Australia. Mm-hmm. And yet we're seeing Australia taking what is clearly uh, the most um, aggressive and outspoken stance on a number of these issues internationally. What are your thoughts, Admiral, on the two Michaels situation? Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I really don't want to go there other than to say that um, I think it, it's it's a tragic situation um, that these two men and their families are in. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's gone on for far too long. Um, I, I would like to think that there is uh, a, a potential outcome here, but certainly um, it, we seem to make... Uh, you know, one step forward and two steps back on both sides of the discussions. Um, you know, I think the forensics of all of this at some point will reveal that we could have avoided it, um, but I'm not sure at, at this point uh, how useful that, that that analysis might be. Mm-hmm. I've asked you this before, but it's such a, a shifting playing field, so many moving parts involved. How fractious a world are we in now? If we can sidestep COVID for a moment, I don't know if that's possible anymore, but if we can sidestep COVID and we look at the um, the dynamics that are going on around the world, the West versus the East, uh, China um, bellicose toward the United States, the United States not willing to back up, as I don't expect them to, um, Russia and Putin, you know, flexing whatever they possibly can. How dis- how troublesome, how-, how concerning is the world now? Well, I think it is, it's very uh, troubling. And, um, you know, you, your, your comments, uh, I think, give a really good overview. And I would, I would suggest that rather than ignoring COVID, I would consider COVID as a significant factor in in this ongoing evolution of global security. I think you're seeing China um, taking advantage of the situation and the distraction of many of the other countries in the world, the United States uh, in particular. I think um, you're going to see a number of countries for uh, a variety of reasons, uh, potentially economically motivated, are going to look inwards um, in the coming years and potentially decade as countries try to figure out how they're going to reset, rebuild themselves. And, uh, you know, the, the people who have um, objectives and intentions that are not necessarily in everybody else's best interest are going to use this situation to further their own agenda. And that, that, that concerns me um, on top of all those other things that you're referring to. Yeah. It is an unsteady time in which we live. Michael Bryant has a lot of credibility on the issue of 
civil liberties in this country. He is the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We've had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Bryant on a number of occasions as far as the COVID pandemic has been concerned. And uh, we talked about, uh, Michael, thank you for coming back on the show. We, we talked about, we talked with you about uh, politicians making changes to uh, to law and to the rights that we have as Canadians, making adjustments. And and so I was very interested to read your piece in the um, Toronto Star, the massive interest in Canada's imaginary vaccination laws. And uh, just the sentence, as of this writing, there is no law proposed by any federal, provincial, or territorial government mandating inoculation. So no law, but massive interest in an imaginary law. Can you just pick up on that and tell us what, what's your feeling? Are we making a lot of noise about nothing? Yes and no. I mean, the, the concern about forced uh, inoculation is, um, uh, you know, maybe it's a reasonable fear, but it's not one that is going to find any reality. There is not going to be a law that requires or authorizes um, the state to put a needle in your arm. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And the, you know, the Ontario government, for example, recently was explicit about it. There hasn't been a provincial or federal government that has suggested that that's coming. The risk, uh, or the, the the new risk, I guess, uh, to people's civil liberties is the uh, idea that the health minister in Ontario floated this week which, uh, to the effect that We'd um, we'd be like the Dr. Seuss book uh, on the the the, the sneeches uh, who have uh, stars on their bellies. Uh, so if you got the star in your belly, then you're good to go. If you don't, then uh, the suggestion was if you don't have an immunization passport, the, the minister said, you'll be restricted in terms of what you can do and where you can go. And and we obviously have a lot of concerns about that because of. Uh, what we see as violations of people's privacy, uh, their equality, and that this actually amounts to uh, uh, infringement on their liberty because it um, it coerces people uh, to say, look, there's no requirement that you need to get the inoculation, but if you don't have this immunization passport, you're not going to be able to go anywhere or do anything. Okay, if we remove the word passport, does that change anything at all? Because when you have the Minister of Health for the largest province in the country, speculating about um, saying, you know, vaccines will be voluntary, as you write in your column. But uh, there may be restrictions on travel or other activities that could arise as a result of not being vaccinated. That, again, from your column. Does does that change the, the dyma- dynamic a little bit, Michael? Because you said to me on this program a few months ago, your concern was that adjustments have been made, changes have been made by politicians to the, um, the freedoms that we have or the of the options that we have as citizens. And you also said the second time is going to be easier than the first time. So I think this is where people are going, thinking, boy, are they going to do something to us? won't be a passport, but it might be some sort of a, a card that we get mm-hmm. now when we go for our annual flu shot that says, you know, you, Michael Bryant, or I, Roy Green, had our flu shot at this and this location at such and such a date. We might be asked to present that. Is is that an area of concern at all? Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the there are um, places and jobs that will require one to uh, reckon with this business of inoculation. So uh, we already have a law in the books in Ontario that requires that if you're a student uh, attending a public school, you either need to file your inoculation record with the school or you need to fit under certain exceptions if you're going to participate in the public school system. And um, there are exceptions built into it so that if, if there's, for example, a medical reason why somebody can't take the immunization, then they're not excluded. But there's a big difference between that on, on the one hand and, you know, examples of frontline workers uh, who are delivering the inoculation. You know, they're going to, uh, if, if they weren't themselves vaccinated uh, or otherwise can't um, establish their immunity, then uh, that obviously creates a massive risk. So those are at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum is the idea that you need to present this card to um, uh, not 
the public school system and not your your boss at the hospital, but to uh, to a restaurant uh, owner, to uh, a movie theater, to a TTC um, uh, uh, worker, because uh, in which case we're spreading our private information to places where. We would argue uh, is a violation of people's privacy, and then the other problem with it is that inevitably, what will happen is the last people to get inoculated are going to be mentally ill, homeless, vulnerable people, new Canadians, etc. People who um, will be at the end of the line in terms of getting inoculations, and they will be the last ones to end up getting this card. And along the way, they'll be discriminated against because the more privileged people like me, I'm going to figure out a way to get the card when I'm eligible as quickly as I can uh, so that I can go about my business as quickly as I can. Well, not everybody has, you know, my capacity, your capacity, um, and those people will be discriminated against if you require this. Uh, so th- that's our concern is that it violates people's equality and it violates people's privacy. So is the card... The issue or the application of the card the or the demand for the card? Where's the concern? It, it, where are you required to produce the card? That's the concern. So it's none of anybody's business as to whether or not you get vaccinated or not. And it's also Because we are going to get cards, right? We are going to receive a card when we get our I vaccine. I don't know. I mean, that's the other side of this. But that happens now. Uh, is let's assume that there's some kind of inoculation record. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but, uh, the, the issue then become the, the problem is not the creation of that record. It's what, who you're required to disclose it to. And in some cases it would make sense that you need to disclose it to the school board for a student. Uh, but, uh, we're saying that if you require that it be, uh, disclosed, uh, to the general public in order to enter, say a grocery store, that's where the problem arises. We say that's overly broad and will end up discriminating against people. So do you, I don't quite understand, are, are you saying that you can't imagine that happening or a government, provincial or federal, endorsing the use of a, of a, of a vaccination record in, in that manner, that you can't imagine a government endorsing that, or, or, or are you saying something opposite to that? No, I'm saying it would be, I, I'm saying, well, we know that the, that the health minister floated the idea yeah and i'm saying it would be unconstitutional if they tried to pass a law requiring people to produce uh their private health record on demand so do do you not imagine can you not imagine them doing that because i'm not quite sure when i read your op-ed it seems like you're saying you can't imagine any government doing that but now i hear you saying you have concerns they might if i'm understanding you correctly yeah, I'm saying I cannot imagine them passing a law requiring people to get inoculated. Okay. So that's ruled out. Okay. What's I agree with ruled that. in by the health minister is the idea that if you don't get inoculated, then you're not going to be able to go about your business in society until further notice okay so so it's let's assume that you get inoculated i get inoculated everybody is inoculated or most people are let's just make an assumption here yeah so we all go to um to a, to a mall i'm just trying to come sure. up with a common denominator yeah. and so you might want to go to store a i want to go to store b somebody wants to go to restaurant c and and they all say uh, the same thing to you as you enter do you have proof of vaccination if you do, you can move around this establishment uh, without any concerns, without a mask, without any uh, restraints whatsoever. If you do not, then we're either not going to let you in or we will impose certain restrictions. Where are, where's the line? Yeah, I, the li- well, the line is the idea that you need to, I mean, the idea, the, the, the problem, the line is where you start distinguishing people on the basis of whether or not they have they produce that private health information i'm saying it 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 violates people's privacy and their equality to require people to have to disclose something about their their health and where the problem arises is not you and me who've just been inoculated i don't mind telling everybody i'm inoculated but what if you um can't be inoculated because of a medical condition that you have Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to disclose your medical condition 
to um, Baskin and Robbins in order yeah, to get ice point. cream. Um, the, I, I think that the fact is we will all continue to be masked and socially distanced until the state of the virus is so low that it's no longer a danger. Mm-hmm. So this isn't about whether you or you and I are inoculated. The public health issue is, do we get to 70%, 80%, 90% inoculation level, which will mean we have herd immunity, not just for those who were inoculated, but also for those who can't be inoculated, like a newborn baby. Okay. My, 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 my guess is, my assumption is, that before we get to herd Im- immunity, that uh, we will find ourselves uh, with a significant percentage of the population eventually being vaccinated, and that percentage of the population is going to have to present some sort of evidence to the satisfaction of, uh, of, of, of proprietors of whatever area we wish to go to to be allowed to have unrestricted access. I just have that. I mean, we live in different times. According to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, Nearly half of all surgeries were cancelled across the country during the first four months of COVID-19, and that is in comparison to 2019. And um, surgeries dropped between March and June in uh, 72% of procedures were postponed, it says here. So let's talk about that and the fact that according to the Fraser Institute, healthcare wait times in this country now are at 22.6 weeks. That's the longest ever recorded. And if you divide that by four, you come up with almost six months. That's never mind trying to see a specialist. Dr. Ann Collins is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Collins, thank you very much. And I can only imagine how interesting a year it's proving to be for you. Well, it certainly has been a very different year for all of us. And, um, I, I think it's critical that we're talking today uh, about wait times. Indeed. So, so how serious was the postponing and the cancelling of surgeries during the first wave of COVID in the first months of, uh, of, of six months, let's say, of 2020? What kinds of surgeries were affected? And do we know how many Canadians are suffering today because of this? So the CMA um, commissioned a report uh, looking at six procedures, uh, and how they were affected in a very snapshot uh, window of time from April to June uh, 2020. And, and what we found was really quite concerning in that 80, these are procedures that make up 80% of what's done in hospital. So things like hip and knee replacements. And those wait times increased you know, between two and three months. This is an average across the country. And you refer to Kaihai, and they have wonderful data as well. So it, to, to make up, to fund catching up on just these procedures and just in that first wave would cost $1.3 billion. But that's not the most significant cost here. The most significant cost, as you've alluded to, is the impact that it has on those Canadians. If you're waiting to have your knee replaced or you're waiting to have cataract surgery and you can't see, the impact on your life really is not measurable in percentages or in dollars. Um, Pain, trying to manage pain safely, not being mobile, maybe not being able to drive because you can't have your cataract surgery done, that's the kind of impact that Canadians are feeling. And we also know that there are cancer patients whose surgeries have been postponed, um, maybe because of the realities of COVID. Other people were just afraid to go to the hospital and present and, and, uh, and you know, have their symptoms examined. And there's a physical, there's a physical health and there's the mental health component. Absolutely. And this is what's been measured. There are many things that have not been measured and, and probably not any significant measures done on the impact of what we're experiencing now in the second wave. So, so there are many things like delayed screenings, for example, mammograms uh, being delayed for months, um, uh, other screening procedures like for colorectal cancer. 
And, and you made a great point about people not presenting during that first wave and probably not now with the fear of contracting COVID. Yeah. And so when they do finally get diagnosed, uh, their disease will be that much more advanced. The treatment options may not be as, as many uh, to them because of the stage of their disease. So this has a far-reaching impact on Canadians. Well, that takes me then to this question, Dr. Collins. What will the fallout, or we don't know because we can't measure what's happening this year against any previous year because it hasn't happened before, uh, certainly in the last hundred years. Uh, what will the fallout, though, can we guess, can we guesstimate, can we have an idea what the fallout might be to the national health care system uh, with the postponing and the cancelling of medical procedures, diagnostics, and surgeries, when COVID-19 is no longer posing an immediate threat uh, that it does today. In other words, how long will it take to catch up? Can we catch up? Does anybody have any answers to those questions? Well, those are great questions. And we have to remember, too, that th- this healthcare system that we're talking about was an ailing healthcare system prior to the arrival of this pandemic. Of course. And this pandemic has stretched it and those working in it to the max. They're, they're at a tipping point, certainly in many parts of the country. So in order to deal with the backlog on an already ailing and, uh, you know, teetering system is going to be a challenge. But also, too, we have to remember those people working in the system, um, you know, they're, they're tired, they're burned out. We expect some of them will have psychological trauma, you know, after the pandemic. So then who's going to be able to step up and deal with the surgical surge? And I'm just talking about surgery. This is nothing about primary care or any of the other services that have been delayed. Who's going to be able to step up and deal with that surge? So those are, are questions that at CMA we are asking, uh, you know, our, our leaders to be prepared to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it is a hugely significant issue. We have yesterday, if we can look at it in the short term, yesterday is the first wave of COVID. We have today the second wave of COVID. And then we have tomorrow, which is trying to re-energize a healthcare system which was teetering in the first place. I mean, our healthcare system is constantly under strain and hospitals are always overstressed, pandemic notwithstanding. You, I would like you to please just say a few words more about your colleagues in the, uh, in the medical profession, doctors, uh, you represent the CMA, but there are others on the front lines of medicine. You are experiencing uh, a hugely difficult 2020 and uh, and you all touched on this, but how are you holding up? What are you hearing? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for acknowledging that. Um, it, it varies uh, across the country, clearly, in those areas uh, right now, like Alberta, B.C., Ontario, the prairies, where, they, um, you know, where the number of patients presenting to hospital and to ICU, and let's not forget the deaths that these individuals, these physicians, nurses, and workers in long-term care facilities are having to deal with. It, that's incredibly difficult. We're hearing anecdotally, and we're seeing. We're seeing it on the news, right, the, the pain in the faces and, and the, the uh, you know, uh, staffing shortages because people are, they're tired, they're exhausted, some of them are sick. Um, so, yes, it's having an incredibly taxing effect on the healthcare workforce. And really what they want to know is, is that, that our government leaders, federally, provincially, are there, that they're seeing this and that they're, they're making attempts and, and you know, funding whatever it takes to fix this system and, and also to look ahead to make sure that we have a system there when this is over. The status quo is no longer acceptable. It's, it's not an option any longer. No, the status quo has crumbled, hasn't it? It has. But the fact is, we work... Uh, the uh, Sorry, let me just try to reorder, reorder the thoughts. We... Um, 
worked with uh, the, the uh, uh, lobby conflict of interest commissioner uh, on a regular basis on a broad range of issues uh, when the issues come up. On this issue of a, a family vacation with a personal friend, um, it wasn't uh, considered that there would be an issue there. It was, and uh, the conflict of interest commissioner pointed that out with the ethics violation, and the current conflict of interest commissioner, or ethics commissioner, parliamentary, if you wish, Mario Dion, is still investigating, Mr. Trudeau, on the most recent potential ethics violation, and that has to do with the We Charities issue, so it's ongoing. It's the eloquence that is baffling. Um, you laughing, McTague? You know, I never thought I'd see a day where a leader of a country would be, uh, would be without words and uh, obviously uh, confounded by... Uh, uh, a trap he's made for himself. I mean, the fact is, this is not uh, somebody who is usually unscripted, uh, spends a considerable amount of time before a mirror uh, in order to give his uh, theatrical eloquence. And we've seen a lot of those kind of empty comments, uh, as we saw yesterday with his push on taxing the living daylights out of Canadians when it comes to uh, transportation and heating fuel. So, look, any way you want to slice it, uh, this guy's not fit for government. I've said it before. I've known that since... He was prancing around as an MP behind the scenes, telling, you know, looking, uh, as my colleague Michelle Simpson would <laughs> more eloquently say than I could, trying to remind people of all the great headlines he was getting. Uh, he's a narcissist. And, uh, look, I, I can be as eloquent and I can be as cerebral and, and get into any debate uh, and any research and any discussion. But this is one where it has me really baffled as to why Canadians, particularly those in the GTA and large urban centres, continue to vote for him and uh, support him. I, I, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, especially for, as a Liberal of many years. I find it, uh, uh, and having known his father and worked for his father uh, you know, in, in, in Ottawa as a very young uh, intern, uh, I, I'm, I'm shocked that Canadians are simply voting based on a name and nice hair, socks and selfies and sobbing. I, I want to say hello to you. Uh, Dan McTagg, founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years, uh, very responsible positions within the uh, federal government of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. My friend for... How many years have we been friends? 30? Right, I don't know. It's been well, a long time, isn't it? And, I, and you, you, you proved to me, and we're not going to get into this, but you proved to me on the air that you're an honorable guy years and years ago when I didn't really know you. And uh, I won't talk about it because it's not relevant now, but you, uh, from that day forward, I trusted you in what you said and who you are and what you stand for. Okay, now, uh, the carbon tax is going up. And uh, folks, here's how much more you could pay at the pump. 35 cents per liter gasoline to 2030 and 42.5 cents for diesel and aviation fuel. Dan, what's the impact of this? And, and particularly at a time when we know already, and we'll be talking about this tomorrow, we're expecting the food cost, the, 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 the annual food cost for the average Canadian family to go up by $700 next year. So what's the impact of this carbon tax going up? Well, there are two carbon taxes. Uh, the one that uh, got snuck through uh, today, yesterday, uh, under something called the clean fuel standard, as if we don't have clean fuel already. Uh, that puts another 12 cent premium on gasoline, but another 14 cents on diesel. And that's over and above the 35 and 42 you just mentioned. Uh, that's between now and 2030. And so, uh, it's not just, of course, on gasoline and diesel, uh, which affects the movement of transportation everywhere. It's also on, uh, natural gas. Natural gas prices will go up. Propane prices will go up. Uh, that means the cost of drying grain for farmers, uh, will quadruple. It means that the cost of transportation will quadruple. It means that there are many input costs here uh, through something called the output. It's almost a tongue twister. Output-based pricing system. That system uh, is really designed to say if you're a big manufacturer, you're emitting, you're, you've, you've got, uh, you're creating some credit, you have to buy credits, expensive credits. They're not rebated. They're instead passed on to consumers. Big companies don't care. Banks insurance companies, large industry, even oil companies, they don't care because it's you and I they're going to have to wind up paying for this. So while we see the obvious, which is now a 40, 45 cent liter increase in gasoline, uh, 50, 55 in diesel, we don't see what uh, uh, companies are having to, uh, to, to incur. And so that's likely to lead to a, a doubling in the cost of living in Canada in a very short period of time. 
The fact that this announcement is made in the midst of a pandemic, an economic decline the likes of which we have not seen in generations, is absolutely astounding and really speaks to what I said originally. He's not only not fit to govern, he's going to ruin this country. And I, I, I can't be more emphatic or dramatic about the comment. It's just that I don't see how people can sit back and say, oh, this is great, this is wonderful. And I don't mean to slight any particular media. I mean, you can be the Globe and Mail, you can be the Toronto Star, you can be the CBC. But all of you have to take into consideration that people are hurting right now. And the last thing they need is uh, government coming up with a trendy way just so they can boast on in, in international fora uh, that they're prepared to really put the screws to Canadians in a country, in a country, Roy, that produces some of the cleanest energy in the world yeah. and has a reputation for doing so. Yeah. And we're still importing over, what is it, over 700,000 barrels of foreign oil from right. questionable regimes each and every day into Canada. Without a tax on them. They don't, they're not subject to a tax. Everybody is laughing at Canada because you've got... Uh, You've got a pretender trying to, you know, to uh, virtue signal his way, his way, a prime virtue signaler, as I referred to earlier, inflicting massive pain. He's, he's. I mean, if it weren't for any other reason, it's something called political sadism. You're basically saying you want to recreate Canada in some kind of ideological image, which is proven to be a failure. You cannot rely on renewables, and you certainly cannot rely on, you know, taxing the, the stuffing out of people, so they all drive around electric vehicles. I don't know if anybody knows this, but electric vehicles are not uh, environmentally friendly. In some cases, the Manhattan Institute has made it very clear that they're far worse in terms of their damage to the environment in terms of producing, in terms of the kind of energy that they receive. They're less efficient. And most importantly, they ha- can't be realized without massive subsidies. I mean, look for right now. I look at just two plus. Well, I mean, he, he said yesterday he's going to pour billions of dollars into uh, EVs. Roy, we have incurred a four hundred. I know, Dan. You don't need to convince me. What's wrong? But what's wrong with people? There's thirty six percent of people out there who want to vote liberal. I mean, folks, give your head a shake. Are you? Are you? This is insanity on full display, and no one wants to go around to call. Well, let me let me run this past you. Let me run this past you. The prime minister said, I'm paraphrasing, that this climate initiative, or whatever he calls it. Uh, the climate change initiative, I think is what he said, is necessary to piggyback onto COVID, the recovery from COVID, because it's going to help the economies recover. Now, I couldn't sleep after that remark because I was trying to understand how that works. And, and I stayed up. I was awake until four o'clock in the morning. I've only slept about two hours. Honestly, Dan, I was, I was thinking about this and got me thinking about a whole bunch of other things. And uh, explain, please. You can't because it doesn't make sense. You're saying you're going to experiment with something that's never been done. No other country has undertaken. No country is going to $170 a ton. And even if they were, they're not energy intensive as we are. And they certainly don't produce energy the way we do. But think of it, uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, another way. Uh, you know, you begin with the premise of a country that has, among the G7, the worst record uh, in terms of employment. You have borrowed on a GDP basis more than any other country. And you think you can simply continue to print money at will, recklessly, as you will, uh, without any type of consequence. Mm-hmm. The reality is, in the very short period of time, and I would expect in the next eight weeks, uh, the pain inflicted on Canadians, not just what he plans to do with the carbon tax, but uh, the fact of irresponsible fiscal management is likely to lead this country into a situation where it will get a... You know, I've, I've spoken with the parliamentary budget officer several times recently, uh, Ijeru, good guy. Yep. Comes on this program regularly and really like him. He's funny. We have some jokes. We have, you know, we laugh. But there's also, obviously, there's very clear and very concise and very precise uh, analysis from Mr. Giroux. And, uh, I mean, he talked about the multiples of billions and billions and billions of dollars that are spent without accountability. And he said, essentially, look, if you can go to sleep at night comfortable, here, here I am again with the somnambulist, yeah. Uh, if you can go to bed at night, sleep comfortably, knowing somebody is spending your money without you really knowing where it's spending, or they're spending it, good for you. But he said, I can't. But, he, but, but, but Dan, let me just run this. Let me run this last one by you, because we have about a minute. The repeat message of supporters of Mr. Trudeau and his um, carbon tax is that rebates will rise and the carbon tax will continue they say continue, to be revenue neutral for families, for farmers, for truckers, for national support systems. They all require oil and gas. What do you say? Andrew, 
you'd pay a GST or an HST, point number one. Point number two, depends on the size of your usage. That's not rebated. Point number three, carbon tax number two, the clean fuel standard, for which four Atlantic provinces wrote a rare letter to the Prime Minister on November 30th saying, please don't inflict this on us, because they know, liberal and conservative, they know that this is going to hurt them. So I would say that anything coming from Ottawa is spin, and unfortunately, the only thing that will be spinning is the Canadian economy spinning in our collective graves. Well, when Mr. Trudeau says, and in partnership with provinces and territories, we as a country will strive for the upper end of a range of 32 to 40 percent below 2005 levels uh, by 2030, I guess he hasn't uh, had a look at uh, Premier Kenny's Twitter feed today. No, no, he hasn't. And you know what? He also hasn't taken a clue into the fact that his Deputy Minister of Finance packed it in. Nobody in their right mind knows that this country isn't going to go over a major cliff. And I know you've spoken to very, uh, a lot of very, very much more intelligent people than me uh, who know which way this country is going. And I'm only giving you a political example. This is worse than when we inherited uh, in 1993 when we came to power to try to fix things. You've destroyed the energy sector. You've destroyed manufacturing. Your cute ideas here in Ontario with driving up electricity rates makes sure that there's never an opportunity for the next several generations to get the financial ship back together and on a, on a straight keel. And unfortunately, the person heading the ship of state is running it directly into a uh, you know into an abyss, the likes of which uh, this country is going to be suffering for many many years to come. Okay, if you disagree with anything that's been said in the last ten minutes, send your emails to Canadians for Affordable Energy. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm glad to take them. I, and believe I know you will. I know you will. Joining us now. Vaccines, the big story, the issue everybody's talking about: Pfizer versus Moderna. What to expect from each one? What are the nuances of the particular vaccines? What are the limitations? Will the composition of vaccines be adjusted as experience with them grows? Lots of questions. And joining us is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist, University of Toronto professor, and also a physician at Toronto General Hospital, and uh, part of the advisory committee, the rollout committee for the vaccines for the province of Ontario. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, where, where do we begin this? We, we have vaccines beginning to arrive in Canada, but in small numbers. I want to ask you about that. But let me answer my first question myself. Let's begin with the very earliest vaccine to be approved by Health Canada, and that's Pfizer. What realistically is the expectation for this vaccine as far as protection against COVID is concerned? So if people get the Pfizer vaccine, they can expect to have very significant protection against getting COVID-19. Is it 100% protection? It is not. But it appears to be very, very good. Um, but there's difficulty transporting it, isn't there? How, how is this going to be applied? Yeah, yeah, this is a really finicky product. And we know it's got to be stored at minus 70. We know once it's thawed, it shouldn't even be jostled or moved around. Uh, because it can denature and not not be as effective. So when you're looking at all the provinces' rollout plans, that's why you're seeing provinces not take this to rural or remote or underserviced places. And many provinces are, I don't think any provinces are actually transporting it to long-term care facilities. You're seeing this being used in frontline healthcare providers mostly or in employees, people that work in long-term care facilities. Basically, you're going to be bring people to the vaccine rather than the vaccine to the people. That might change with time, but we're using the product along with how we know this product should be used now. Now, of course, we might find out we can move it around a little bit easier without having it uh, lose any effectiveness. And of course, you might see some policies change when, if, if and when we have that information. But for now, there's still a lot of needy people that can get it that can come to a vaccine site, and that's what's going to happen. So I start to wonder whether, given what we know about it now, without learning more and finding that it has potential beyond what we understand now, is this a vaccine that really is effective as far as mass inoculation is concerned? Absolutely. I think it could be one of several. Like, in and of itself, it's not going to do the job. But from the very beginning, you've heard many people in public health saying, we're going to need several vaccines, and this could certainly be part of the armamentarium we have. This would be a perfect vaccine to station in a public health unit, a hospital, uh, you name it, a central location where people can perhaps book an appointment and come on in to get, a, to get a shot. That's no problem at all. This is not the vaccine, at least what we know now, this is not the vaccine that you're going to be putting in helicopters and trucking around different 
different locations. Like it doesn't appear that it's going to work in that kind of in that kind of manner. But guess what? There's others that are in the pipeline that will. So I think we use the right tool for the right job, and there's a lot of good we can do with this product. So now we have Moderna's vaccine, which is supposed to be approved in just a matter of days, as I understand it, by Health Canada. How is that different to the vaccine of Pfizer? So there's more similarities than differences. The similarities are basically that it basically is a very similar composition. It targets the virus in a very similar manner. It works through very similar mechanisms. But the way that they put the, the vaccine together, it's sturdier. It's sturdier. Yeah, it only needs. It still needs to be stored at minus twenty instead of minus seventy. But it looks like once you thaw it, it's way more robust, and you can move it around. You can jostle it. You can fly it out to places without being concerned that this thing is going to degrade or denature. So this is the one where you can put in a truck and take it to long-term care facilities. Put it in a helicopter fly it out to some rural or remote or underserviced location. So you imagine you put your stick your Pfizer vaccines in a central location, your Moderna vaccines for uh, travel and transport to, to reach other communities. And between the two of those, I mean, you can do a lot of good. We still might get access to other vaccines, but even, even with the two of those vaccines, we'll be able to cover a lot of ground. Is there any chance at some point down the road where, you know, we'll look at these vaccines that are available, there'll be more than two eventually. I know others are in the pipeline where you'll say, well, we'll be able to create some sort of composite uh, vaccine that takes the best from all of them and, and creates a really super vaccine. Yeah, maybe. I mean, certainly with so many vaccines in the pipeline and with clearly an infinite amount of resources being poured into this, we might get to a point where we say, you know what, here's an inexpensive vaccine that doesn't require a lot of issues, that's cheap, that's a one-dose deal, that provides terrific protection, that has a terrific safety profile. Like, that's, that's obviously the goal. Um, will it come soon enough? I don't know. Maybe. Like, we'll see what happens with the Janssen product. We'll see what happens. AstraZeneca is a two-shot deal. There's a few others that are in development. And, you know, I, like anything else, I always bet on human ingenuity. I think we'll find something. But let's hypothetically say we don't find something like that. Even with what we have available today, it looks like we'll be able to do a lot of good. You can mass produce these. They appear to be safe and effective. And, uh, and I think we can really... We're starting. Like, can you believe it? It's starting next week, like December of 2020 in Canada. It's starting. It's absolutely wild. One question I'll ask you before the break that I see in emails a great deal, and that has to do with the mRNA. And and the question that I see repeatedly is: Does this particular effort or this approach have the potential to sell to change cellular construction and thereby change human beings? Um, very existence significantly, yes or no? No, it's not, it's not how it works. It's not what mRNA does. Basically, mRNA is just a code. That's all it does, and it tells your, your cells to make something. It just all it, mRNA doesn't affect your cells. All it does is it's just a code, and the code tells the cells, hey, can you make something that looks a little bit like the virus? It's not even the whole virus. Can you make something that looks like a tiny piece of the virus? So your cells make something that looks like a tiny piece of the virus, and then your immune cells say, oh, that doesn't look right, and your immune cells attack it. So now your immune cells recognize something that looks like a tiny piece of the virus. So when you're actually exposed to the real virus, your immune cells are already primed. They say, I recognize that. I've seen that before. And then they go attack the virus. That's all it does. It doesn't alter your cells at all. That's not how mRNA works. As long as people are still asking questions, that's the best place to be, right? A hundred percent. I'm with you all the way. Please okay. ask away. There should be questions. There should be concerns. There should be people have, certainly have some some very thoughtful questions and perhaps some concerns about this. And it's our job as the medical scientific public health community to address these head on. Dr. Bogosh, I'm going to really put two questions together here. I have them separate, but I'm going to try to combine them because I'm seeing emails from people who've seen the stories come out of the UK where they started the rollout of the vaccine, Pfizer vaccine, and there have been some Allergic reactions, not many, um, but there have been some significant allergic reactions. The story is that those patients are doing well. But who should not be uh, vaccinated? And I'll sort of add to that that the UK is warning people with a history of severe allergies should avoid the Pfizer vaccine. What's the, uh, are we getting ahead of ourselves? No, no. I mean, I think it's going to be a rare event. But of course, as anything else, we have to look at what happened in the trial and what happened in the real world. In the trial, they excluded people with severe allergies. 
Uh, it's all transparent. It's all freely available. It's all published online. You can see how the trial was run. Uh, I think that was published in March or something, February or March of this year before they started these studies. And then you can they have what's called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. Who can come into this trial and who is not in this trial? They enrolled 43,000 people, and one of the exclusion criteria was people with severe allergies. Then you start rolling out the vaccine in the U.K. a few days ago, and you have two people who, you know, carry EpiPens because they have severe allergies, and sadly they had an allergic reaction. They're recovering. They're doing well. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, it's there's going to be bumps on the road. This is a bump on the road. I'm glad everyone's doing well. And then you, you saw the uh, NHS, or the regulatory body, sorry, pardon me, in the U- UK say, you know what, you've got severe allergies such that you're carrying an EpiPen, you should hold off on this product for now. I think we're going to hear some guidance from healthcare. I mean, our programs aren't even rolling out yet, but I think before they roll out, we'll probably hear some guidance from Health Canada uh, on who should and shouldn't get this. Uh, we already have some. Uh, 16 years and up will be eligible. Um, and of course, we're prioritizing the highest of high risk first. So we'll get some guidance on allergies in this uh, shortly. And, uh, and you know, by the time this becomes available, everyone will be well informed about who should or should be able to get this product. One last point. If you can't get this Pfizer vaccine, luckily there's others that are coming through the pipeline and you'll very likely be able to get one of those. And we are at a stage now, are we not, where we just really need to find out what we need to find out, like how long will these vaccines be effective? What level of protection do they offer the vaccinated person? Uh, can you still transmit uh, COVID if you have it, but you're being protected by the vaccine? These are all questions that we don't have ready answers <laughs> for yet. Yeah, Roy, it's like you said, you're like an epidemiologist. It's wild. You got it. Those are the, those I'm are the, learning as I'm going along. Well, it's impressive. Like, I mean, we've been talking for months now, but I feel like you should be doing my job. Like, it, it, you're spot on. You're <laughs> you totally can do mine spot then. on. Right? There's, there, we can't pretend to have all the answers because we don't. We're learning a lot as we go, and, and we might see some. No one should be surprised if you see any changes or pivots in real time as we learn, just like with this allergy business. You know, there's, there, and, and of course, there's going to be other things we're going to learn along the way. Those are some very good questions that we just don't have the answer to. But luckily, they're answerable questions, and we will have answers to those <clears throat> probably in the two, three months ahead as vaccine programs start to gear up. Dr. Bogosh, one of the questions that I see repeatedly by way of email, and I've seen it at least a dozen times, more than that over the last couple of days, is this one. Was the approval process short-circuited because of the nature of the pandemic? No, this is how, I think people have to be aware that this is how products come to market. So we're talking about COVID-19 vaccines, but you could also be talking about a medication, a medical device, right? You have to do the science first, the preclinical, they're called preclinical studies before you get it in humans. Then you do what's called a phase one clinical trial. You only involve a handful of people. Usually in the, you measure it in the tens, around 50, 10 to 50 people. You look to, for safety, you look for dose finding in there. If it all goes well, you go to a phase two clinical trial. Usually that's several hundred people. You look to see, for example, in vaccines, is the immune system, is the immune system doing what the immune system is supposed to do? You also look at safety there. If things look okay, you go to a phase three clinical trial. That's where you enroll tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. Uh, you look for safety. You look for efficacy. And, uh, and then once that, if, you, if that looks good, then you submit all your data to the regulatory bodies, independent regulatory bodies, Health Canada in Canada, FDA in the United States. They pour over the data. They give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. They give it the thumbs up in Canada, and you start to roll it out. doesn't stop there. There's formal processes to evaluate these products as they roll out in the real world, and that's called post-marketing surveillance to see, you know, are there really, really rare side effects? Is there something that we didn't see in those trials that enrolled 43,000 people that we're seeing in bigger populations. It's all important and it's all going to be studied. Okay, to sidestep the vaccine for my last question for you. Global news story this morning was about how COVID-19 could damage the brain. There have been some at least surveillance stories. I don't know just how detailed and how knowledgeable the medical community is about this, but it's what's happening to survivors as COVID as far as their limited and deteriorating brain function is concerned. What I read was very disturbing. What do you know about this? It's interesting. I mean, we've heard about several neurologic manifestations of this virus. Uh, one of them, though, is just it's, it's hard to categorize. But people sort of describe it as a brain fog. And, you know, after people recover, they just don't feel like their cognition is as it was before. Hard to quantify, hard to know how significant this is. 
but but certainly it's come up several times. I think there's many other mechanisms where this can can damage the brain, especially through the blood vessels that feed the brain. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you don't want to get this virus. Like we should be doing everything we can to protect ourselves from getting this virus because sure, there, we just don't know everything about it yet. It certainly okay. can damage the brain. It can damage many other organs of the body. And uh, if we can do it, we, can, we should be doing everything we can to protect ourselves and our families from getting this just to avoid all of that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.